following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Father, it's good to take a week to remember how dependent we are on your word every year. It's better to store up that word in our hearts every single day so we have it with us wherever we go. We have it with us when we process the events of our day. We have it with us when we're putting our kids to sleep at night. We have it with us at the hard work meeting, Lord. So we, we thank you for your word, and we trust that right now in these next minutes, you're going to work through it by your spirit to make much of your son Jesus. pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, we keep hoping that we don't have to say things like this, but this week has been another hard one. I don't say that lightly. It has been hard. It was hard to process all the events going on. There was more chaos. There was more fear. There was more anger. There was more outrage. And so we can watch these things just wonder what, what do we do with all of that? Yet as we've seen in Acts, certainly the people of God have faced hard times before. Even times of just blatant persecution. And yet, here we are, as the people of God some 2,000 years later. And we would ask ourselves, what, what has held the people of God together? We've seen that the, the world doesn't hold together. So what has held the people of God together. And I think as we look at Acts, as we've seen in Acts, that it is fellowship with God through the Word and prayer as the primary means. And that's why every year at Bethlehem we start with sermons on prayer and the Word to remind ourselves of our primary sources of fellowship with Jesus that will help us hope, that will help us worship, that will help us depend on a sturdy place when everything around us is shaken. Now a couple of weeks ago, I talked about living in a culture where the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are making less and less sense. It's not just that people reject them, it's that they just don't even really make sense anymore in the climate that we live in. And that's true. But I want to be clear that our culture is still a culture very much engaged in worship. Yes, shoving Jesus to the side as Savior and Lord, but no, not stopping its worship. In fact, I would argue that all the events we see in our day, whether godly or ungodly, are fueled by a life of liturgy. So what is liturgy? Liturgy is a word that simply means a way to organize our worship. So when Nick planned the worship service today, he was planning a liturgy, a way to organize ourselves in worship. And we all do this. We all do this. We all organize our lives, how we spend our time, our energy, our money, our talents, our gifts around different things. We organize our lives around them. And as that happens... As we grow in our love for something, we spend more time, more energy, and more resources on it, and our devotion grows for it. 
right? It could be a, a hobby. It could be a, a politics. It could be a sport, right? Some of you are devoted to fantasy football. And, and here's what I would say. In this life of liturgy, what tends to happen is we organize and our devotion grows. We get around other people, don't we? We want to be around other people who have these same ideas. And then as we get around them and they reinforce our ideas, this devotion grows. And this organization of our lives around what we love is a life of liturgy. It's a life of worship. So I would argue what happens in political races and in political rallies is political liturgy. That's what's going on. What happens when protesters gather and when riots ensue is social liturgy. What happens in a Planned Parenthood is a type of liturgy. What happens when a Facebook thread about masks or riots or politics takes up a life of its own is liturgy. That's what's going on. Now, you think I'm way off? You think, well, you're just saying that this is a clever way to frame things? Well, I've heard at least three different politicians refer to the Capitol this week as the temple of democracy. I've heard Planned Parenthood doctors argue against protesters outside their doors as violating a sacred space. I've heard many people refer to politicians as the only one that can say this or that, right? God raised this person up. Well, of course he did, but not in the way that we often talk about it. Right, I remember when the marriage amendment passed a few years ago, and many of the supporters and even some of the politicians said that it was a holy moment. Those aren't just words. If you're paying attention, they're evidence that our culture, though growing increasingly apprehensive about Jesus Christ, is still full of worship, organizing their lives around worship. And as we breathe in the air of the culture around us, we need to be increasingly vigilant to make sure that our lives of liturgy are formed and calibrated around Jesus Christ because He is still the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is He not? So Christians, South Campus, there is a world out there. When I say out there, I mean like across the street and up the hill and in your neighborhood and at your workplace. And at your coffee shop, there's a world out there that's apprehensive about Jesus, but longs for His forgiveness, whether they know it or not. They're trying to bury their shame by making the things they worship right. But what they really need is the freedom of forgiveness. There's a world out there that thinks trusting in Jesus makes you a foolish bigot. Don't be surprised, it's always been the case. This is not something new in our day. Yet this lonely generation needs the comfort of knowing Jesus and the freedom to obey His commands. There is a world out there that thinks the church is useless, a relic. And yet those same people are desperate for the self-giving love that ought to mark us as a people. So in our passage today, here's what I hope we see. We see a people saturated in the word and prayer 
Because their liturgy of their lives is centered around Jesus. They're saturated in the word and prayer around King Jesus. And they become a living apologetic that shines as light in the darkness. And that's what I want for us. That's what we'll see today. So let's dive into our passage. And what I want to do is dive in by again reading verse 31 from last week as we dive into point number one, the centrality of the word and the people of God. Look at verse 31 with me. It says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So I want to point out a couple things here about this people. Sometimes we read that verse, we go, man, I just love this place to shake. (laughs) There's more going on to that. I would love this place to shake too, but why? First, notice that the place is shaken and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you go back to Isaiah 6 or Exodus 19 at the Mount Sinai, we would see that when God's presence comes, His presence fills the place and things begin to shake. It's almost like creation can't quite handle the fullness of God, so it begins to shake. Then if we went to 2 Chronicles 7, as Solomon finishes the temple, we go to Ezekiel, or we go even to other places where we see the temple being finished, we see the glory of the Lord fill the temple. His presence fills it. In other words, what Luke wants us to see here is that the people of God are the new place where God's presence shakes and fills them. That's his point. His point is the people of God have become the temple of God. What happens in a temple? Worship. Lives of liturgy. A people devoted to Jesus. We see this right away in verse 31. As this new temple is filled with the presence of the Lord, worship breaks forth as they speak the word of God with boldness. That's what happens in a temple. And that's what happens in the people of God. We'll see it again in verse 33 of our text. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. His presence leads to our proclamation as a living temple. So we're supposed to see here in Acts 4. As the new living temple of God, individually and as a people, they are a living worship center, always proclaiming the triumph of their Savior and King. Now what I want to show you, kind of doing a review through Acts 1-4, to is the centrality of the Word of God in this people who are the new temple of God. I want to show you how thoroughly saturated they were with the Word of God, how thoroughly dependent they were on the Word of God in literally everything that they did. So let's review through Acts 1 to 4. In chapters, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, you remember that they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And where do they go for wisdom? Like if you just had one of your apostles betray you and leave, what would you do? Like, where would you go for wisdom? Well, where they went was to the Word. They go to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 to follow God's plan and God's purposes. They go to the Word. Or in chapter 2, when this miracle happens and Peter needs to explain what has just happened. Is everyone here intoxicated? How does he explain it? Well, he goes to the Word. He goes to Joel 2. And he says, here's God's plan and God's purposes. 
Or as he seeks to explain the resurrection of King Jesus in the sermon in chapter 2. How does he do it? Like, couldn't he just do it by saying, like, guys, I was there. Like, how do you know? Well, because I saw him. Like, they saw him. We saw him. Right? Couldn't he do that? But he doesn't just do that. He goes to the Word. Goes to Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to show that Jesus was always going to be raised from the dead and reign as Lord. As they gather together after the church is born and people repent, what are they devoted to at the end of chapter 2? To the Word, to the apostles' teaching. What about when Peter needs to explain the significance of the miracle that's happened in chapter 3 and call the people to repentance? How does he do it? He goes to the Word. He goes to Deuteronomy 18 where we see that Jesus is the promised prophet like Moses. He goes to Genesis 22 where we see Jesus as the promised offspring come to bring blessing to the nations through his life, death, and resurrection. When Peter was responding to the rulers last week when Daniel preached, he goes to the Word of Psalm 118.22 to show that Jesus is the cornerstone that's been rejected. In other words, you rulers think you're doing something original. Something wise, something clever in crucifying and silencing Jesus. It was predicted that you would do this in the Word. Or what do they do after they've been threatened and released from prison and they go back to their fellow believers? What do they pray? They pray the Word from Psalm 2. The nations rage, but the Lord reigns. That's what marks their prayers You want to know to pray for a revival or a bunch of people to come to know Jesus? Pray like that. The nations are raging. We see it. There doesn't seem to be much hope, but the Lord, He reigns. That's the prayer of revival. Bethlehem, we need to be this kind of people. This kind of thoroughly saturated with the Word kind of people to have a chance to stand and to shine in the days ahead. We hear the heart of God and the purposes of God in His Word. There's so many people saying, want to hear a word from God about what's going on. <laughs> Just open your Bible. He's not surprised. Like He wrote it on purpose. Knowing you would need it in this moment. I mean, these people, these apostles don't know how to talk about life or decisions or persecutions or even pray without the Word of God. They don't want to be devoted to knowing or proclaiming anything more than the Word of God. Why? Because they know that's how they know their Savior and make Him known. They know that's how they know Him. They know that's where the power comes to make Him known. They're not trusting in themselves. Not trusting in any smooth techniques. They're just going, what does he say? What is his heart? What's he about? And they keep looking and they keep saying it. Church, we need to swim deep in the Word. I say this with a heart full of love for you that wants you to thrive in 2021. Do not spend your lives on random, bizarre prophecies that promise earthly victories in this or that. Don't spend your lives on blogs that proof text an issue to help you support your decision. That's not what they were doing. Let's be deeply biblical. 
Like down to the core of our beings, biblical. Like feel it in the depth of your soul, biblical. Like you don't need to go looking for something that supports your position. You just go to the Word and you open it up and you seek the heart and the purposes of God until you see His beauty and His majesty and you can begin to ask Him for help. Be humbled before Him. Let's scour the Bible for the worldview, not that accords with this party or that party, but that accords with our God. How does he see the world? What has he said about the world? The Bible is not just a record of events. It's his interpretation of the event. It's his help for us in our present day. Do you want Jesus to work and teach among us like is promised in Acts 1.1? Don't settle for proof text. Go deep in the Word. Kids, as you memorize verses to earn your nights, for your Wednesday night memorization. Store the words in your heart. Ask your parents what they mean. Make the word a part of your family. Not so you can get a night, but so you can know Jesus Christ and walk with Him. Like, I long for you kids. The reason I'm talking to you every week is I long for you kids to walk with Jesus close. And you don't have to wait until you're in college. Walk with Jesus closely now, whether you're 4 or 94. If we want a life of liturgy around King Jesus, then we've got to be radically devoted to God's Word from cover to cover. We need to plan for how we'll read it and how we'll memorize it. If you want to be the kind of person, if we want to be the kind of people that the world looks at and says, they've been with Jesus then we need to drink deeply if we want to have the sword of the Spirit in our hands to fight against the spiritual forces of the devil and our own fleshly temptations. Do you want, do we want? It's a real question. This isn't like a pastor Sunday school question. Do we want Jesus more than anything? Really? Do we really want Him more than everything? More than anything else, practically, day to day, moment by moment, do we want the world to see Jesus more than we want anything else in this world? Do we want the power we see in the book of Acts? Do we want the Spirit to move among us like we see in this book? Do we want to see the gospel spread like we see? Then we need to have our minds and our worldviews and our comments and our social media pages and our dinner conversations centered around knowing, sharing, and submitting to the words of King Jesus. That's how it happens. They're thoroughly biblical people because that's where they see and know their king. All right, point number two. The word and prayer in the people of God. You're probably already getting the picture that I'm not merely interested in the people that can recite facts about the Bible. But a people whose very affections, whose very lives whose day-by-day, moment-by-moment life together is shaped and formed by the words of our King. And if that happens, and as the Spirit is at work and we devote ourselves to the Word, then we will be a praying people as well as a, as a people full of the Word. We see this in the book of Acts. So I'll show you again. It's a little review because we're going to be out of Acts for a couple of weeks here coming up. As they seek to decide on a new apostle and wait for the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, what are they doing? They're praying. As they gather as a church next to, what are they devoted to? The Word and to prayers. 
right before the miracle happened in Acts 3, where were they heading? To pray. Right after they're thrown in jail and come back to the other believers, what's their just first inclination? We better pray. As I think of the Christian life, I want to give you a, a picture of how desperate we are for the word and prayer. The word and prayer in the life of a true Christian church is like breathing in and breathing out. It's like breathing in and breathing out. We are that desperate for the word and prayer. So kids, right now with me, do this. Breathe in. Breathe out. Now you don't normally think about breathing, do you? But it's really necessary to stay alive. And I want us to be this dependent. When you breathe in or breathe out in 2021, I want you to think of this picture. I need the Word and I need to go to God in prayer. I need the Word and I need to go to God in prayer. They work together. We take in the Word of God. We let it penetrate our souls, pierce through the bone and marrow and lies and fears. And then we breathe out our praises and supplications and pleas for help in our repentance. Breathe in. Breathe out, word, prayer. If we're going to fight against the supernatural work of the devil in our flesh that loves his work so much, we need the living words of God to plead at his throne for grace and mercy and well-timed help. I want to read you a quote from my favorite dead preacher. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And and here's what he says about the, the word and prayer and how it works in the life of a, of a true Christian. He says this. He says, The ultimate test of my understanding of scriptural teaching is the amount of time I spend in prayer. Just hear that, let it sink in, and let it be a test for you. I like testing you with other people so you can't be mad at me. The ultimate test of my understanding of the scriptural teaching is the amount of time I spend in prayer. What does he say after that? As theology is ultimately the knowledge of God, the more theology I know, the more it should drive me to seek to know God. Not to know about Him, but to know Him, the God who I'm knowing. The whole object of salvation is to bring me to knowledge of God. And if all my knowledge does not lead me to prayer, to fellowship with Him, then there is something wrong somewhere. That's the end of his quote. Breathe in the word. Breathe out prayer. Not just to know about God, but to know Him. To know His presence and His power personally in your life. Just ask yourself honestly, right? God already knows your habits. God already sees everything. Is this the breath of your life? Is this the breath of our church? Jesus, let me say this really clearly, because I don't want you to run away and and make an idol out of this or do some weird works-based thing in your mind because of this. Jesus doesn't love you more based on the amount of time you pray or in the Word. Praise God. Right? Or we would just be up and down and crazy people all the time trying to figure out, does He love me, does He not? He doesn't love you more based on the amount of time you spend there. Our union with Him is never broken Right? We just heard in Romans 8, that's not what saves us. But I am trying to stir us up not to live our lives on a ventilator of articles and social media posts and three-second attention spans pointed in the wrong direction. Breathe in. Breathe out. 
What if 2021 was the year where we took deep breaths in and out and were filled with the life of Jesus Christ? If his life is not in us as a church, then we ought not expect to see any of this kind of spirit-empowered work among us or to a watching world. Now, I can't, I can't guarantee you warm fuzzies every time you do your devotionals. I can't guarantee you 3,000 people getting saved by this live stream as we recited Romans 8. I can guarantee you the Spirit will not work in as much power for not a people of the Word and prayer. I can guarantee you that. Is it any wonder in a year that I think left us more distracted and more disgruntled than ever that so much of the world looks on the church now and sees a bickering people anxious about losing comforts and rights rather than a united people anxious about a lost world perishing without knowing Jesus? What are we breathing in and breathing out? The word and prayer are the means by which the Holy Spirit comes in and works. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit. South Campus, do we want Jesus to work and teach among us by His Spirit? Do we want Acts 1-1? Breathe in the Word, breathe out prayer, and let the Sovereign Spirit do what He wills. Point number three. The life of people shaped by the living word. So what happens among this people that is devoted to the word and prayer as the spirit works among them? I'm going to read verses 32 to 35. We're going to get to Barnabas three weeks from now. He can wait. Here's what it says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So we ought not, right, we ought not read those verses as if the first four chapters wasn't shaping it. So we started how we did. How do you think this oneness of heart and soul came about. So we just talked about devotion to King Jesus. Know Him. Make Him known. Lives of liturgy centered around the throne of King Jesus. As the Word was breathed in and prayer was breathed out, individually and together, the unity of the Gospel was alive. Their identity as brothers and sisters in Christ became primary over any other allegiance. I mean, as we walk through this book of Acts, we're going to see this church form with some people that would not have been very good friends in the world. It's a very odd crew of people. It's the kind of small group you worry about a little bit. There's too many differences here. This thing's going to blow up. But they knew the kingdom they belonged to. Their lives were all in to be devoted to knowing Jesus, making Him known, and loving His people as He had loved them. The Gospel saved them, and then the Gospel shaped them. It's just save them and then leave them there, mainly devoted to all the other things going on around Him. It saved them and it shaped them. As the Spirit worked in their lives of liturgy to King Jesus, great grace 
came and the gospel is not only known and loved, but it was displayed practically among them. This is not, like some historians or commentators even say, this is not some odd communal experiment. This is the self-giving, gospel-shaped, resurrected power of the love of Jesus on display among his blood-bought family. That's what's going on here. When there were needs, those who owned things sold them to meet the needs because they knew Christ gave himself up to meet their most deep need. No one any longer said that anything was his own because they finally had a true view of reality that everything belonged to their king anyways. And therefore, everything they had was simply a gift to be stewarded for his kingdom and his purposes. As the word of the gospel is being proclaimed with great grace, the word of the gospel is being displayed with great grace. This was not just to people who knew the gospel, but that was shaped by the gospel in their everyday lives. Some of them gave with generosity and humility, and some of them received with gratefulness and humility. That's what this thing is. There are going to be times where you're the one in need. The gospel says, I can receive that with humility. There are going to be times where you're the one who has extra, extra grace, extra time, extra resources. Be generous with humility because the gospel frees us from clinging to our stuff and our control for everything. Now we can't manufacture this, but if we would be a people with lives of liturgy around King Jesus, breathing in the Word, breathing out prayer, and doing it together, perhaps the Spirit would come in power and grant us great grace to proclaim the Gospel and great grace to display the Gospel. Perhaps Jesus would really come and work and teach among us in word and deed in ways that would surprise us and surprise our neighbors. Now, we've got to be careful here. This is not going to be perfect. Like, we're a few verses away from a couple people getting killed for their unfaithfulness. We're going to get to chapter 6, and we're going to see that they weren't doing that great of a job meeting all the needs. There was some organization that needed to happen. There was some better care that needed to happen. So this isn't perfect. There are issues that are there. There's no perfect church, not even in Acts. But this is a real gospel-shaped people, imperfect, but radically devoted to Jesus and therefore the people of God. Which leads to the application. Called it an ancient apologetic. If all of our life is a liturgy, then all of our lives together are meant to be an apologetic. It means our lives together in this family are meant to be a defense of the goodness and a display of the beauty of the gospel. So think of the church like a movie that's playing for the world for the sake of the gospel. Think of it as an Instagram post that the world gets to look in at for the sake of the gospel. It should not surprise us that as we proclaim the gospel, that our display of the gospel really matters. That shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus said this in John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I want to let you in on this, this story that I found a few months ago. I've just been waiting for the right time to read you this quote, so I'm just excited because I finally found a spot for it. So back in the second century, there was a philosopher named Aristides in Athens. And the story goes, there's, there's different thoughts about the story, so I'm admittedly choosing my favorite. The story goes 
that Caesar was beginning to grow, the Caesar in power at this time was beginning to grow worried about this little cult of Christianity. He was actually a really religious guy, but he was building temples all over the place to the Greek and Roman gods. So if you think now is a rough time to be a Christian, imagine someone in power who is very religious but directly contrary to all your beliefs and he's worried about you. He's beginning to investigate you. This was a rougher time to be a Christian than now. So Caesar sends this guy, Aristides, to find out about this little Christian cult. And as he investigates, he's a philosopher. As he investigates and he's running through these philosophical things in his mind, he becomes converted. And then when this Caesar comes to town, here's the king of the empire, this is some of what Aristides says to him. So if you, you can go and read the whole thing, look it up, the Apology of Aristides. But I'm just going to read you a little bit that I think is helpful for us to see in accord with Acts 4. Here's what he says to the king of the empire about this little Christian cult. He says, They know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, from whom they receive commandments which they engraved on their minds and they observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Here are people fueled by the word there. It says, and their oppressors, the ones that oppress them, that are coming down on them, they comfort and make them their friends. This people is marked by doing good to their enemies. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another deeply. From widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. The one who has gives to him who does not have without any boasting. When they see a stranger who is also a fellow believer, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother, for they do not call them brothers after the flesh, but brothers after the Spirit and after God. And if there's any among them that is poor and needy, and they don't have any spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. Yes, O king, this is a new people and there is something divine in the midst of them. That's a great quote. That quote's been consuming me for several months. I want this ancient apologetic of Christian love and godliness that comes from devotion to Jesus alone through the word and prayer to rise again to the surface today. What would someone say about this place if they peeked in on us? If they peeked into our small groups? If they peeked onto our Facebook pages? Or parlor now, I suppose. Would Jesus be the main thing proclaimed and displayed? This was a much tougher time to be a Christian. At least from a worldly perspective. What would they see if they peeked in on us? What if someone was investigating us? Had to report back. South Campus, would our lives, again, be so oriented around our King, breathing in and out His Word and prayer, that the Spirit might come in power to proclaim 
the gospel of the self-giving love of Jesus and that the Spirit might come in power to display the self-giving love of Jesus among us. I have been praying leading up to this sermon as the events of this week. I have been praying for us that Jesus would lead us back to Him and make us one in Him for the sake of His name and the good of the world around us especially those that right now you consider your enemies and your oppressors. That's Christian love. That's a people who have something divine in the midst of them. So I'm going to just give you a few minutes to pray before we come and take the table together to ask the Lord to help you again this year orient your heart and your life around King Jesus, be devoted to the word and prayer in one another so that the world might look in and say those are disciples of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.